Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 68. I hope each and every one of you are having a fantastic week out there. I know that I certainly am. We have a wonderful program for you today. I will be joined by one of the brilliant jazz artists of the day in just a moment. Mr. Mark Walker will be our guest talking all about his new record that just came out back uh, back in April. Uh, so we're going to have him coming up in just a moment after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by Mark Walker. Uh, Mark is a Grammy winner. Uh, just a fantastic jazz drummer. He he played in the group Oregon, which uh, some of you jazz head folks are certainly going to recognize that name. Um, Mark originally hails from Chicago, uh, and he spent some time in New York City, and now uh, he is living in Boston, and he's been up there for several years. But his new record, he's stepping out as the composer and band leader. Uh, the record is called You Get What You Give, uh, and it is a, quite simply a fantastic record. So I was very pleased to get Mark on the phone to talk all about this new release. It hit the, the streets on April 2nd, 2019. So make sure you go out and grab a copy of it. it again, it's just a fantastic jazz record. Uh, so please help me welcome to the drum shuffle the great Mark Walker. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. It's beautiful in uh, sunny Natick, Massachusetts here. Oh, okay. Massachusetts. Yeah, you're, you're uh, living in Boston these days, correct? 
Right. I've been here for about 13 years, and uh, before that, I was in New York for about 10 years, and I'm from Chicago. I, so, world traveler in more ways than one uh, is Mark Walker. So, uh, Mark, thanks so much for taking time to come on the Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. So, growing up in Chicago, tell us a little bit, uh, because, you know, I'm in the South and, you know, I think most people's um, upbringing on the kit typically starts with, you know, Friday night marching band, uh, you know, for the football games. That's kind of how it rolls in the South. Probably a little bit different in Chicago, but share with us how you got into drumming. Did you come from a musical family? Well, there weren't musicians in my family, but uh, my parents were really into music, and we had a, a turntable where they would play all kinds of music from folk to jazz to pop. And I heard, you know, a lot of Beatles and Bob Dylan. And uh, we grew up in basically what was the inner city in Chicago, it was the old town area. So I used to walk around and I'd hear music coming out of clubs like James Brown, The Doors, and Latin music, I had no idea what I was hearing. Uh, I remember hearing Chicago for the first time, and that really struck me. It was coming out of a jukebox. Yeah. And um, I started really getting into listening to the radio and following the top 100 or top 10 lists. And the first record I ever bought was Frankenstein by Edgar Winter. <laughs> That's a good one to start with. And that kind of influ- had a big influence on my career because it's... Uh, it's an instrumental tune. It's kind of fusiony, kind of jazzy. It's got a sax solo. It's got a uh, timba- trades with timbales and drums. It's got electronics. Everything I love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, for sure. <laughs> eventually, my mother uh, turned me on to Hendrix and Santana, and those had a lasting influence as well. I probably was influenced by Elvin Jones through Mitch Mitchell. And... Um, I remember a couple of specific moments. Um, one was in South Haven, Michigan. We used to go up there in the summers sometime before it was expensive. And uh, there was a band playing. I just just started getting interested in drums. There was a band playing called Hartsfield, and they had just finished their set. And I asked the drummer if I can go up and play his drums. And I he let me do it for some reason. <laughs> so I started playing a groove and... Um, and I was playing a drum set, mic'd, going through a PA in front of a crowd. That's the first time I had ever done that. It was kind of an epiphany. <laughs> it was yeah. like, oh, I should be doing this. So uh, eventually, um, well, soon after I got my first tour together, believe it or not, in grade school, I got a couple of guys together. I had a drum set and a guitar amp and a guitar missing a couple of strings. And we started playing the riff to Frankenstein. Just repeating it, and we went from classroom classroom to classroom. But of course, I didn't have permission, so we got shut down in the third classroom. That was my first tour. That's fantastic. So, at what age was this? Oh, I had to be in fifth grade. Okay, so so real young, really. Oh yeah. Okay. So I started playing. I got my first kind of toy drum set when I was 11 and uh, started playing in the school band at the same time. So that's how I got the snare drum. And then uh, uh, I was lucky to live next to uh, this woman who had a lot of connections in the music business. 
And uh, she hooked me up with a summer job at Deegan. They used to make mallet instruments. And also got me a lesson with Roy Knapp. And oh, wow. I have to backtrack for a second because at age 13, I had a single ticket to go see Buddy Rich. That was another life-changing moment. I saw him at Drury Lane Theater in Chicago in the round. So you could see the stage revolving slowly. And I could see in front of Buddy, behind Buddy. could see everything he was doing. And it just blew me away completely. And uh, at one point in the evening, there was an old man sitting next to me who also had a single ticket. And uh, Buddy Rich said, now I'd like to introduce a very special guest in the house, the Dean of Percussion, Mr. Roy Knapp. And the old man next to me kind of tapped me with his cane to help him get up. So I helped him up, and uh, there he was, Roy Knapp, the Dean of Percussion. He had taught Gene Krupa, Louis Belson, uh, Hal Blaine, uh, so many different drummers studied with him. Yeah, and I mean, then that's three just years incredible. later, I went for my first lesson. So I was 16, he was 87. I walked into his apartment, thanks to my neighbor, who hooked me up with him. And uh, first thing he says is, sit out over there. And he pointed to the piano. So the first <laughs> thing we did was sit down and uh, write out scales and harmonize a melody and uh, write out chords and key signatures and everything. Then he had me go sit at his table where he had an old school practice pad, the one that was a wood kind of tilted block. Yeah. And we went over the rudiments and stuff. And uh, he was quite an amazing person. Uh, You know, I kind of got used to the smell of chewing tobacco when I would walk into his place. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. But I mean, and he said something to me that I might say at the end of this interview, but, uh, he said, you got to study like a doctor or a lawyer if you want to be successful in this business. Yeah. Which is totally true. Yeah. So um, I didn't really do that till much later, but... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> trying to do it. So, uh, you know, I started uh, after high school. I went to high school at Lane Tech, which is a big school of 5,000 kids. And I took all the music programs I could there, concert band, jazz band, marching band, orchestra and played some rock on the side. And uh, the rock band I was playing in went into the studio and did a demo. And I was talking to the engineer and telling him I like jazz. And he said, oh, we have a jazz jam session on Sunday. You want to come down? So I came down and uh, played with some local Chicago musicians. And one of them, Stephen Hashimoto, who's still on the scene today, a bass player with hair down to his knees, um, he invited me to start rehearsing. And I rehearsed with him and did my first jazz gig with him. And uh, that had to be around 1980. And then I was introduced to the whole Chicago scene and I started working. And, um, you know, in short, the gigs got better. And I started getting sessions, recording sessions, did a lot of r and I just took every kind of gig I could from country to jazz to avant-garde rock to orchestral stuff just to try to get as much experience as I could and uh, some drummers around really helped me out like uh, the first time I met Paul Wertico I used to come here and play and he was amazing still is one of the best drummers out there and he said oh you're Mark Walker are you free all the Saturdays in June (laughs) (laughs) I said hell yes (laughs) of course I am so uh, yeah he gave me some what they call jobbing work 
which is, uh, they have different names for it, but like weddings and stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, the thing about weddings, I mean, people may say, oh, it's boring, you know, play weddings. What do you want to do that for? But it helped me understand that I had to make people dance. Yeah. But I had to be quiet enough for the grandmother of the bride who was sitting right next to my snare drum to have a conversation. So <laughs> yeah. it helped me develop dynamics, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that, that whole scene, you know, uh, I've done my fair share of weddings and, uh, you know, and, and there are guys that, that make a living playing, you know, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and you know what I mean? It's just it, sure. those kinds of gigs, um, you know, the, the Moose Lodge, the, the VFW Hall, wh- whatever the case may be, that's really when you're paying your dues and, man, you're learning how to be in a band. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And when you have the right people with the right attitude, it just sounds great and it's fun. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, you know, playing Brick House for the 97,000th time, <laughs> maybe not so much, but, um, you, right. you know, I, I've groused about that song for years and years and years. And, you know, at this point in my life, when I have to play that song, it feels like it's about seven hours long. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I, that reminds me of, I, I, I don't know if this is the exact quote, but... Uh, I think Elvin Jones was asked about playing my favorite things, you know, 300 nights a year, maybe for five sets <laughs> yeah. with John Coltrane. And he said, well, he, they asked him, don't you ever get tired of playing that song? He said, well, we played it as if it were the last time, every time, yeah. something like that. I'm just paraphrasing, but yeah. that attitude, I don't know if I <laughs> could do that with Brickhouse, but... Yeah, well, I, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of the running joke, you know, if you're if you're doing any kind of cover gig, you know, where it's, you know, top 40 or oldies or anything. Yeah, somebody's always going to ask for that song, you know, oh, if, yeah. if it's a, oh, yeah. a wedding or, or whatever the case may be. Right. And, you know, and, you know, people have asked me over the years, gosh, you know, how do you do it? And you just, you know, even though you might hate playing it again, you know, you, you think about everybody out there in the audience and say, you know, this might be the highlight of their day and you have to yeah. approach it. You have to approach it that way. You know, they're having a good time and For sure. uh, keep it, keep it going and you'll get overtime. That yep. was my motivation. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So, well, so when did you, you know, transition your career, your playing career, to New York and I don't want to gloss anything over, but I I know that at some point you made the decision to, to move, you know, to, to, to New York city and you know, you got busy pretty quick, Uh, but you know, was it a gig that led you to New York or did you say, Hey, you know, it's time for me to expand my, my field here. Well, uh, things in Chicago were really good. Uh, This is, talking about the early 90s, uh, jingles were happening. I was getting tons of calls for that. And Paquito de Rivera um, hired me to go on the road for a while and record some records. And uh, that was a real thrill because I started working with people like Giovanni Hidalgo and Daniel Perez. I had no idea who they were. Uh, but they're just, you know, like the top, at the top of their game. Uh, and then at the same time, Lyle Mays, Pat Metheny Group piano player, formed a quartet and we went out with him 
So this was all happening, and I would come to home to a stack of jingle checks, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. But then I started getting restless. I thought, wow, you know, I should really... Uh... Oh, actually, something happened. I played in at the Blue Note in New York with Paquito, and I met Michelle Camilo. And Michelle is, is you know, famous for um, using fantastic drummers like Dave Weckl, um Horacio Hernandez, Daphne Sprieto, Cliff Almond, Joel Rosenblatt, and uh, many others. Um, and I said, oh, Michelle, it's great to meet you. I'd love, love to play sometime. This is up at the dressing room in the Blue Note on a break. And he said, oh, yeah, well, move to New York and we'll do some playing. Ah. And I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, my, my, okay. t- my ticket is purchased. Yeah, right. So I uh, and just, you know, not to mention working with Paquito. That was amazing. Um, and so I decided to move to New York. And when I got there, I didn't know how to contact Michelle. So I looked at the back of the CD and his phone number was on there. Believe it or not. Oh, wow. So I called him up. And I said, hey, I'm here. <laughs> Let's play. So he said, okay, I'll send you a few charts. And uh, so I started rehearsing the charts. I got a gig teaching at Drummer's Collective at the time. And I, I used some extra time I had just to uh, go into a room and practice this material. And um, then in 96, uh, Horacio El Negro Hernandez got the gig with Santana. So Michelle called me. And I already was booked on a tour with Paquito Rivera, big band. And so uh, I asked him if I could sub out. And he said, Cornio, it's good exercise. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he got Antonio Sanchez to, uh, to cover for me while I covered for Horacio. And so I did a gig for about two years. And at the same time, I got the gig with Oregon featuring Ralph Towner, which was a completely different style of music. Yeah. And... Um, so that was a real thrill, you know, touring with the, both of those guys and playing with Paquito here and there. And uh, uh, I was also working with the Caribbean Jazz Project featuring Paquito, Dave Samuels, and Andy Norell. And that's definitely, uh, that's, that was a little school for all of us because uh, we had a bass player, Oscar Stagnaro, who was from Peru, and he had so much uh, knowledge of Peruvian music and South American styles, as well as Caribbean styles. We had a pianist from Argentina who's a great rhythm player, Dario Escanazi. And, um, and then we had the, the trio in front, Paquito from Cuba, Andy Norell, who played Steel Pan, who was almost like an honorary Trinidadian, and Dave Samuels, one of the best vibes players in, you know, in the history of the instrument. Yeah. So we made several records, and uh, we would travel without a percussionist because they didn't really have the budget, but we would record with percussionists like uh, Luis Conte and Pernell Saturnino, just some of the top guys. So I had to figure out a way to play these Latin rhythms to fill it in and make it sound like there were two guys playing. And I you know, worked on various ways to do that. So, you know, uh, it was great experience, you know, all through the 90s learning about these Latin rhythms and Brazilian rhythms. And I was doing a lot of Brazilian gigs around New York as well. So it was a really good time to, you know, be in New York and do a lot of playing and a lot of traveling. 
And uh, actually, the Berkeley gig came up in around 2000, 2001. They were looking for a full-time person up there, but uh, I didn't get the full-time position, but they offered me a part-time position. So I took it and started teaching Brazilian percussion, and uh, that led to a lot of different things. That led to me putting out a book and uh, authoring some labs and authoring an online course in Afro-Cuban drums. So it's been a great, uh, great 19 years over there, part-time, and uh, met a lot of people, and that basically led to me doing this record. Well, yeah. This record actually... uh, you get what you give is actually uh, the result of a Berkeley faculty grant. So I got free studio time and I called the best players I know, including Alain Mallet, great piano player. He's uh, been musical director for Paul Simon for many years. And um, Oscar Stagnaro on bass and a fantastic, fantastic guitarist named Tim Miller. And, uh, the same percussionist I mentioned, Pernell Saturnino, and Paulo Stagnaro, Oscar's son, who's now playing percussion with Ricky Martin. So we did about seven tunes and uh, about four or five of my originals. And that was about 12 years ago. And for some reason, I sat on it for many years and didn't do anything with it. I guess I just got too busy. Really? <clears throat> okay. And finally a few close friends of mine kind of lit the fire under me more recently. And I just, uh, I just went ahead and I was going to put out the record with seven tunes. And I realized that I really should have 10 tunes on a CD to make it worth it. So, uh, I got some more studio time by the same engineer that had recorded me 12 years earlier for an engineering class that he has. He needed a band to come in to record. So I just got, uh, whoever I could find at the time. And we just walked in. I had no idea what we were going to do. <laughs> and we walked out with three tunes. That's fantastic. Those and are two the, of them were originals. It, it, <laughs> those are the best sessions, you know, where, where you walk in completely blind, you have no idea what's going on. All you know is you've got studio time, you know, right. and right. sometimes it's the most uh, free and creative that, that you can ever be, you know, on the other side of the glass kind of thing, you know, it's oh, absolutely. just fantastic. Well, you know, it, the, the record, um, I think the, the official release date is sometime in April, uh, of 2019, which is just, just a, a couple of weeks away. Right. Um, but I got my hands on a, um, you know, a media only preview copy and I gotta mm-hmm. say it sounds fantastic. Um, Thank you so much. Well, there are a couple of factors in that. I mean, beyond the playing, the playing is, you know, by all all the musicians is wonderful. But we had a really well-balanced mix, and we did it at uh, Berkeley Recording Studios, which are kind of -of state-of-the-art. But then I made the decision to have it mastered at Capitol Records in L.A. because uh, they have certain gear that no other studio has, and they don't mix necessarily with plugins they mix with old school yeah tube compressors and whatnot and uh so i thought okay i've got this nice fun interacting interaction in the studio well balanced and if i put this la sheen on it this sparkle on it it might sound really good and that's exactly what 
we got. Yeah. And I think a lot of musicians, and I don't want to get too much, you know, inside baseball here, but that's okay. Um, I think a lot of musicians will spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on recording the, the, the best, you know, album or song that they can possibly do. They spend a lot of time on the, the mix mm-hmm. to make sure everything is great and then they just master it in Pro Tools with the, you know, generic Pro Tools mastering plugin kind of thing. And you definitely lose something there. Um, you know, immediately to my mind, you know, George Marino at, at Sterling Sound, you know, th- there's a reason why when you read your liner notes, his name is all over everything because, <laughs> you know, and he charges $10,000 to do an album, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, it is not cheap, but there's a reason why, you know, every record you heard from the eighties and nineties was mastered there. It's a critical step that a lot of people think, well, it's not going to make that much difference. And the casual music fan doesn't even know what mastering is really. So it, it, it shows on your record um, you, you can definitely hear it. It sounds great. And when you said, you know, a lot of this stuff was recorded 12 years ago, I was shocked because it, I mean, it doesn't sound that way. If that makes any sense, it, it right. sounds, it's pretty much the same technology. I mean, it doesn't yeah. go back, you know, it was definitely pro tools back then. It's pro tools now, but, but, uh, Robert, Robert Vosgen, who did the mastering, <clears throat> was uh, I did I was there with him when he did it and he just did an amazing job and uh, he told me that the project he did right before mine was remastering Birth of the Cool by Miles Davis so wow. I thought, okay I'm with the right guy here <laughs> yeah for sure well I mean it it sounds fantastic and you know I I've spent a little bit of time with the record and you know listened to it three or four times. And, you know, without sounding too uneducated, it's it's definitely got the Latin flair to it. No doubt about it. There's some really cool fusion kind of stuff going on in there. But the the track that I was really drawn to um, is the track called Deep Six. And it's got a, a lot of really cool stuff going on in there. Yeah, Deep Six. I kind of got lucky with that one. Um I had written that and recorded that with Oregon on uh, this album called A Thousand Kilometers. And I actually got a Grammy nomination for that tune in, uh, in the category of Best Instrumental Composition in 2007. So uh, I wanted to put that version on the record. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I've been playing Afro-Cuban stuff for a long time, so 6-8 that rhythm was not brand new to me, but I wanted to write something really cool with an interesting melody. And uh, when I was writing it, I was on tour with Oregon at the time, and Ralph Towner is one of my favorite composers. He's perhaps the best classical guitar player in the world and a great jazz piano player too, and one of my favorite composers, as I said. So sometimes uh, what I would do is kind of get his input a little feedback on something I'm writing. Yeah. Cause I'm lucky to be stuck in the van with him for six hours. So what I would do is I'd write something. I maybe work on the first ending of that piece. And, uh, I'd hand the laptop up to him with a set of phones. And he said, no, not, not quite. 
<laughs> so I'd rewrite it a couple of times. And then he said, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, look, spending time with, with, with somebody mm-hmm. like Ralph Towner, I mean, I, how this guy isn't, you know, a household name, I'll never understand because he is oh, yeah. just simply he an honorary doctorate. If anyone does, I, I completely agree. I mean, just one of the, the, you know, stone cold, great guitarists of all mm-hmm. time, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so He's on tour now in the States. Is he really? Yeah. How old is Ralph now? Chicago. Uh, I mean, Ralph's got to be getting up there in years. Yeah, he's about 80 now. Okay. Well, I mean, more power to him. You know, I mean, and, you know, the the more generations that can go out and watch him play, the better off we're all going to be, in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's just got to be incredible. But at the same time, I guess I'm curious, you know, as a drummer first, who's composing, you know, on melodic instruments and, and mm-hmm. you know, we can touch on this, but I'm always curious when a drummer decides to do a, a drummer led project or a drummer led recording, how nervous do you get when you hand your melodic compositions to somebody like a Ralph Towner and, and let him critique it? I mean, do you, does that ever just kind of mind warp you a little bit? It would me. Well, oh, sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, there have been compositions I've handed him where where I'm sure he thought they sucked and he rejected them. So <laughs> I, I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I just think it's, you know, I've had some, some you know, wonderful drummers on the show that have also composed their own music. And I, it, it is great, but I'm always curious, you know, when you're sitting down and writing these things, are you thinking drums first or melody first? And what has always shocked me is that everybody says, nah, the drums are usually nowhere in my mind when I'm composing, you know, the, the piano or, or the, you know, anything like that. I'm not really thinking about what I'm going to be playing as a drummer. Yeah, I, I forget about the drums. Exact, that's exactly it. I mean, sometimes when I, we for, first rehearse a piece, I'm listening so much to what everybody else is playing to make sure they have it right that I, I don't even know what to play on drums. <laughs> I have to develop the part after the fact. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I just, I, I know in my mind, I would be thinking about how am I going to approach this as a drummer? And it's because I don't have those strengths on piano or guitar or or any other instrument. You know, I, I can play a little, but nobody wants to hear it. You, you know what I mean? But, you know, you could still you could still hum a melody or come up with some kind of melody and develop it. So, you know, you have as much music as anyone else. Well, yeah, that's true. And, you know, I mean, I I guess in all of my musical situations over the years, I've always approached it as, you you know, my role is more of the, uh, I don't know, the town planner, if that makes any (laughs) sense. You know, it's I like that. Yeah. Let's put the bridge here instead of there. (laughs) Or, you know what I mean? It's it's no good going, you know, to the chorus a, a third time, you know, whatever the case may be. You're really so, into structure. That's good. Yeah. It's more about arrangement, I guess, yeah, to me. Yeah. But, you yeah, know, I, nobody will ever give me credit for saying, well, you know, Jamie helped me come up with this guitar riff, even if I did, you know, because it's, 
I, I can hum it and say, now do something with it. But, but I can't, uh, you know, I don't feel confident enough on any other instrument to sit down and say, this is the melody of the song. Right. 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 I mean, I don't really play piano in real time, but I can, I can, I know I have a certain knowledge of harmony and I can come up with the melody in my head and put it together with the chords. So that's basically, you know, and I can steal other ideas. So that's what I do a lot. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. Well, and you know, I mean, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, there's nothing that hasn't yet been done. I mean, there's, there's not, you know, five chords out there that nobody's discovered yet, you know, right, and, right. and, and they've all been played in different orders a thousand times. So, oh, yeah. you know, it really is all about the arrangement to make your song different than thousands of others, I guess. Yeah. And it also comes down to what would you like to hear? What would you like to listen to? What, how, at what point does it get boring if you do too much of this or too little of that? Or how is it balanced out? That's what's important to me, too. Yeah, for sure. Well, in, in mission accomplished on, you know, uh, you get what you give. I mean, it's, it's a great record. Um, and you know, dare I say very danceable. I mean, if, Oh, wow. Great. I never thought of it like that. That's cool. You know, I mean, I think if somebody wanted to have, you know, a, 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 a Latin dance party, this is absolutely a record that I could hear playing, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really groovy. It's cool. Um, and you know, I encourage all of my listeners to, to check it out. So, um, I, I know that, you know, in our pre-interview, you mentioned that CD baby was handling uh, some of the distribution for you other places that yeah. it's going to be available. Oh, sure. It'll be available on all the digital platforms, you know, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Well, again, kids, buy it from CD Baby. Mark gets more money <laughs> that way. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. In advance. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, because streaming it on Spotify, I think, uh, you know, one stream equals 0. 0.0001 cent. So uh, you basically get a thousandth of a penny for every stream. So I was hoping the zeros would go in the other direction someday. Oh, you know, yeah. They don't don't we all. But don't get right. me don't get me started on how we get paid. Uh, you know, I'll blow up the interview for sure. Well, you know, actually, uh, a good source for musicians, I think, is, uh, have you heard of Ari Herstand? Ari's Take? Yes, I have. He's got a great book how to, about, uh, it's called How to Make It in the New Music Business. And uh, it's really uh, kind of my Bible right now. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it was written just a few years ago, but it's one of the most up-to-date books on the whole business. And uh, he's not against Spotify like a lot of people are, but he just tries to be smart about how he collects his royalties. So that's I'm learning a little bit about that yeah, every day. And, and you have to, but, you know, right. I mean, the, the um, copyright board here recently decided to, to raise the rate that, you know, copyright holders receive from these places. And, of course, right. Spotify and Amazon immediately protested. Pr- protested. Oh, sued in federal court and yeah you know apple said no we'll pay it so kudos oh, to, good kudos to apple for you know i i guess saying no we're gonna pay you know what's right and then, then you have you know 
terrestrial radio, which is a whole nother, you know, bucket of stuff. Oh, absolutely. They don't pay any royalties at all. It's a subsidy from our federal government, (laughs) really. And, you know, um, there's, you know, what is it? The Local Radio Freedom Act in Congress right now, which is, uh, you know, who would be against local radio freedom? But basically, it's telling these massive broadcast corporations, no, you don't have to pay songwriters anything. We'll, we'll Amazing. keep. Yeah. It's so, it, it is the Wild West. Um, it, it's a jungle out there, and I wish you nothing but the best. But <laughs> thank uh, you. It, you're, you're welcome. But, you know, it's hard to make a living in this business. And, and that's why. So many folks, you know, have to stay on the road all the time to make money. Right. I think they all, they also have to, uh, I can't remember the expression, like uh, there's something where you extend sideways, you extend your business sideways uh, by doing other things. So for me, it would be setting up a clinic the same day as a show. Right. Or selling books or selling CDs. So there's all these opportunities that any musician would have if they're if they really think about it to generate more income because the gigs, you know, I mean, if you fill the house, yes, you'll do all right. Uh, but uh, when you get all the expenses in there, it's a little tough. It, it I mean, re- even with a big group, it, it really, really is. Tough. It, it is really tough. And, you know, it's, um, and, and God forbid if you're an opener for somebody, you know, I mean, it, right. it's, a lot of times, a lot of people don't realize it, but a lot of times the opening band has actually paid the headlining band to tour with them. Oh. And <laughs> that happens all the time in the business. Wow. It happens all the time. The headliners making a little bit of extra money by selling the opening slot. And those bands are looking for the exposure. That's why they're right. out in the merch booth after they're set, trying to move t-shirts and CDs and you know, I, right, and I, right. I apologize for turning this into a clinic on how to make money, <laughs> okay. Mark, but we have to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. so, but you mentioned doing clinics before shows and right. I, I definitely want to get this in there. Um, the modern drummer readers poll, uh, just came out a few weeks ago and you were one of the top five clinicians as voted on by the readers of Modern Drummer. So clearly you've been doing a lot of clinic work, good clinic work. Well, that was a that was kind of a surprise. I think that came mostly about because um, I was featured in an article in the December issue of last year, and they have a series called... Now I'm spacing out on the series name... Um, but it's about uh, working players who are also teachers. Okay. And so I kind of laid out some of my playing and teaching philosophy in that article, and I guess a lot of people liked it. So all of a sudden I was nominated and wound up getting fourth place. And uh, uh, Mike Clark, the great drummer, who's a friend of mine, he got fourth place in the uh, mainstream jazz category, and we were in touch. So I said, hey, when it comes to number four, we're number one. <laughs> That's fantastic. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I tell everybody who who was in that category with you. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dana Hall from Chicago. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. All those all those players. Benny Greb. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're in a rarefied air there uh, appearing 
you know, in that list or whether it's first place or, or fifth place, it, do, you yeah. know, it doesn't matter. It's just, um, I think it's a testament to what you're out there doing. Uh, what, what is a typical clinic, um, for Mark Walker look like? What can, you know, folks expect if they come to one of your clinics? Well, actually I just did a clinic last week in Chicago and, uh, at Vic's drum shop and great shop, by the way. Yeah. Um, and what I did was uh, I played along with one of the new tunes on my record, and then I talked about what I had just played and uh, different Latin rhythms, and I took questions about uh, that. That's what most people ask me about. But uh, I'm prepared to talk about pretty much pretty much any style of music. I'm not really a metal kind of person. I don't usually play double pedal. <laughs> but when you know, Fair. if. if there are plenty of guys who can explain that really well. <laughs> right on. Ladies, plenty of ladies and gentlemen who can explain that really well. But um, people ask me more about uh, authentic Latin rhythms because I've really studied it. And one of the things I always tell them is that listening is 50% of it. Because if you have a context, then you'll know more about what to play. But if you haven't heard it, you'll just sound like a, you got it out of a book. Yeah. And like my colleague at the University of Michigan said, the paper don't swing. That's exactly right. It, <laughs> it, it does not. And, you, you, you know, if I can interject for just a second, sure. you know, I grew up as a disciple of John Bonham. I mean, that's, oh, yeah, the, me too. you know, that's kind of the center of my drumming universe, you know, He's because amazing, yeah. He, he kind of had all the tools, you know, the, the power, the groove. He had some swing to him. Um, the tuning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, he, he was just the center of my drumming universe. And oh, yeah. without fail, you know, there's five million videos on YouTube breaking down every John Bonham groove. And, you, mm -hmm. you know, you can find that stuff for Buddy Rich or Elvin or any drummer, really. Sure. But I can, from a mile away, I can spot the guys that learn their bottom groove from YouTube. You know what I mean? Ah, it's, it, yes, you, yes. you can, you can see it from a mile away. It doesn't come from the, I'm just going to play along with the record a billion times until I figure it out. Right. Right. Those guys really had the groove. I mean, Bonham was funky. Yes, very much so. And, you know, and those are the great drummers that we're going to continue talking about for another hundred years. You know, what Absolutely. did this guy do? Jeff Percaro, you know, I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on trying to get inside their head, you know? Yeah. So, um, and I think if you just buy a book and learn how to play something, it, that's only part of it. So your point is very well taken. Right. Even if they buy my book, listen to the music first. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And, you know, I know that you do a lot of great work, you know, in your teaching at Berkeley and you're bringing up the next generation of, of great players. You know, what are you seeing, you know, the, the young college age guys and girls, what are they coming to, to professor Walker with, you know, what are they wanting to learn about? Well, basically, they're stealing my gigs, which is, and that's a good thing. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like uh, uh, Eric Dube, great drummer out of New York. You should interview him sometime. He's a fabulous player. 
And uh, he basically stole my gig with Paquito de Rivera. I mean, I still work with Paquito. I'm just joking about stealing it. But but he deserves it because he put the work in, and he's a great player. And uh, there's a young, uh, young Japanese drummer. He's about 20 years old, and he can play everything. He started studying with me when he was 13. He signed up for my website, markwalkerlessons.com, and he was the only subscriber to send me videos of himself playing and I gave him feedback and he got all the styles down everything you could imagine like 14 countries worth of you know grooves and now he's got a full ride scholarship at Berkeley and he's stealing my gigs in town <laughs> wow I, but, see, but they're supposed to steal our gigs right yeah, they are you know yeah, it, yeah and that's one reason I formed my own thing nobody can steal my gig <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and right? you know, it, it makes me happy to hear, you know, these younger players and, and, you know, look, I'm not over the hill by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. but I see these young players coming up and there are so many of them that inspire me. And it makes me kind of go back to the woodshed and that's what it's supposed to all be about. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's some guys coming out of Berkeley that are just they, they have great technique, great musical sense. They're nice people. Um, they have a really good business sense. You know, they're really organized and they're coming out with their own records and they're like, you know, less than half my age. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, <laughs> they're doing really well. It's scary when those guys get, you know, 20, 30 years experience, what they're going to be like, you know, yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it, it's scary. Well, so, Mark, what is going to happen next for you? I know that you're about to fly out of the States and go to Japan for some work. Um, but are you going to be touring, you know, later this year here in the States on the record? Or um, Yes, I'm going to be. Uh, well, I'm currently looking for a booking agent, but right now I'm booking my own shows. And uh, I do have a CD release happening and drum clinic on the same day. Uh, near Boston at the Center for the Arts in Natick. And that's uh, a little bit west of Boston, Natick, Massachusetts. That's going to be on May 16th. Okay. So I'm going to be uh, working that. And uh, then I'll be booking some other stuff. Okay. So um, I do have a website. It's markwalkerdrums.com. So I'll be listing all the shows up there. And I'm on a Facebook and et cetera, et cetera. Cool. And now I know that you also do some uh, Skype lessons and, and things like that. So for our listeners that might want to do a little bit of studying with you, is that the best way to reach out to you is through the website? Sure, you can do that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it, email. yeah, I mean... It, Look, um, if anybody needs some jazz playing lessons, it's uh, yours truly here. Um, you know, I, I had the the great Peter Erskine on this show uh, last year. And oh, wow. Fantastic. It, yeah, it was uh, it was a real highlight uh, of my day. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you He's know, always been a super inspirational player to me. And uh, as far as being on the L.A. scene, I mean, he's like. He's the king of sessions, the king of education, and the king of jazz players. 
you know, he's got it all happening. He does. And just great guy too. super nice human being. But, you know, we were talking about me and my playing. He was and that's the cool thing about Peter is he was curious about me. Like he kind of turned the interview around and wanted to know about me. And I, I was just blown away. But I told him, I said, you know, I, I, I just can't play jazz. You know, I love listening to the genre. It's just not in my wheelhouse. And he said, well, why is that? You know, and, and kind of, you know, psychoanalyzed me for a couple of minutes. But, you know, his point, uh, what he said was, you know, the older players get, drummers especially, they want to kind of go back to the origins of the instrument. And, and everybody ends up discovering jazz at some point. Right. Oh, yeah. So when you grow up in a rock and roll or R&B kind of life the way I did, you know, two and four is, you know, the word of God, the strong backbeat on two and four always. Mm-hmm. How do you get out of that mindset and learn how to swing and comp? OK, here's the answer. You go to the crossroads. Check this out. The crossroads. What I'm talking about is a video I saw on YouTube with Chuck Berry, uh, I think it was 1959 at Newport, and he had Papa Joe Jones playing drums. So this is the crossroads of jazz, rock, and blues, because they were playing a blues. It was swinging. Papa Joe is, you know, the father of jazz drumming, and he's playing a backbeat on two and four. So he's the father of modern rock drumming, and uh, there's a clarinet solo, and it's a rock clarinet solo. Okay. So that I just wanted to put that in perspective because it's all happening right there. So that's kind of where you can split off in any direction you want. You can go straight up swing from there. You can go straight up blues from there. You can go straight up rock from there. And that's where it all meets. So there's always a meeting point between all those, all those grooves. And it just happened to be on stage at Newport in 1959. Okay. I I will absolutely have to find that. Oh because, yeah, you got to check it out. It's swinging too. Well, yeah, and and that's my problem is, you know, I I sound like a rock guy trying to swing. You, you know what I mean? It, it, I I don't know how else to explain it. I just I have a hard time just letting kind of that that jazz comping with the left hand flow out of me. You know. Well, it, you know, I think I mean, to me it all starts with a ride. But uh but there's definitely some bottom to it too. Like uh, I would say what you can do is you can listen to a bunch of jazz records and try to play the ride cymbal along with the drummer with the same pocket that they play it with. Don't worry about the comping stuff. And then at a slower tempo, you could add some soft feathering on the bass drum. That's really hard to do at a faster tempo, but at a slow tempo, it's a little more, it's a little easier. And then as far as comping, um, just imitate some of the phrases you hear. But what you have to strive for is balance between the four limbs. So the ride cymbal has to be prominent. If you're feathering the bass drum, that has to be way down. Just think of it as adding a little bottom end to your cymbal beat. And then the comping has to be slightly under the cymbal so that it's not smack, you know, like that. Right. Now, of course, there's going to be somebody who breaks the rules who's, you know, legendary. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. But in a general sense, if you have the balance, and then the other part, uh, if you have the balance, that's going to be uh, a good start. Then you have to get the feel. 
and it really all starts with the ride symbol. Uh, one of the, you know, besides usual coordination exercises, one of the things I always show the drummers at Berkeley just getting into swing is um, some videos by my colleague Ian Froman, who's a great drummer around New York. Uh, he, he, he's a Canadian drummer from Ottawa, and he's been new, in New York for years, studied with Elvin Jones, and um, he's got these videos on alternating the ride symbol. So what he's doing is getting away from the static dang, 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 dang sound, and he's creating these variations. But he's taking out some key notes, and he's tying some key notes to really give it kind of an open feel. And I really like these videos. I like the way it opens things up and creates more space. And if you watch what he's doing very carefully, a lot of the times when he does anticipate or tie something over, he'll back it up with the drum, and it sounds really cool. So that's a that's been a big influence on my style and teaching. So Ian Froman, if you look up alternating the ride symbol, uh, those videos are now on YouTube. Okay. I think they were on Vic Firth for a while, but really makes a lot of sense what he's saying about that. If you check that out, I think that will probably change your playing. Well, it's definitely something that I'm I'm interested in. You know, I mean, all these years playing in various uh, you know settings, and you know, learning how to play a proper Texas shuffle and and all mm-hmm. those things. There should be no reason why I can't. I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, oh, I, absolutely, I, it's I, all about the groove. It's a, it's the same thing. It's not a physical limitation. I don't think. I think it's just something in my head that I haven't figured out after. 30 years of playing. Maybe I never will, but I appreciate the, uh, the insight and advice, Mark. I, I truly do. That's, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I mean, you know, and if you go out and hear live jazz with some great players, that will definitely be helpful too. I remember hearing Elvin Jones one time and, uh, he, and Roy Haynes for that matter. I mean, so many of the greats, uh, it was just, you know, it's just so influential just to feel them pushing that air yeah, and doing amazing things with rhythm. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, I, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking time to, to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, the, My pleasure. the, the, the record is just fantastic. I hope everybody so will much. go out and, and buy a copy now, as is the tradition here on our, uh, program, we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice to share with other musicians and other drummers. So um, give us a good piece of advice that we can take out there in our day-to-day life. Okay. Um, when I was 16, I saw Art Blakey at a club in Chicago, and I had the gumption to go up to him and say, Hey, Art, do you have any advice for a young drummer? <laughs> and he said, without any hesitation, he said, you got to play with someone every night. <laughs> <laughs> took me a while to understand that, but it's yeah. so true. If you're playing a lot, you, you know, up on your game, you got that interaction happening. Um, and you're always listening. It's such a good thing. And, uh, it takes us out of the, uh, you know, being stuck in the computer mode. Yeah. I, that's, that's really good advice. And I, you know, dare I say, you know, I, you have certainly been around some of the, the greatest names in the genre, no doubt about it. Uh, what a, what a lucky, uh, 
guy, you know, as a oh, young yeah, one, feel that way. <laughs> you, you know, as a young drummer to be around some of these just, you know, gargantuan names in the genre of jazz. Wow. I mean, that's all yeah. I can say. Wow. Um, again, it's uh, markwalkerdrums.com, correct? That's correct. And my uh, lesson website is markwalkerlessons.com if you want to check that out. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to send some folks your way. Mark, uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I hope you have a successful trip overseas and you're welcome on this program anytime. Keep us posted on everything that's going on. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, your first Skype lesson. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming right up, brother. It's coming right, right up. Mark, thanks so much. We'll talk to you very, very soon. Thanks so much, Jamie. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 68 of the Drum Shuffle. We certainly appreciate each and every one of you tuning in week in and week out. We simply cannot do this without any of you guys doing so week after week. Many, many thanks to Mark Walker. Uh, just what a great guy. And as you can tell by that interview, uh, he, he's got some really great stories and some really cool stuff going on. Make sure you uh, go out there to his website and pick up a copy of that record. It really uh, is worth a listen, no doubt. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Jerry Pentecost. Uh, you will certainly know Jerry from his work with Amanda Shires and uh, Brent Cobb. These days, Jerry is just everywhere. Uh, the Americana Music Awards uh, and Americana Fest. He's kind of the house drummer there. Just getting lots of good stuff done. So we're going to be joined by Jerry next week. So we're really excited about that. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen to the drum shuffle. That helps us immensely to continue our growth process here at the show. The thing that helps us more than anything, share a link with a friend. Tell somebody you know that would love the drum shuffle to listen to the drum shuffle. Uh, we really do appreciate it, and that helps us more than anything. As always, we love hearing from all of you throughout the week. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is our email address. We do answer every single email that we receive throughout the week. Uh, the drumshuffle.com is our web address, and you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, go ahead and click on those social media links that you see. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Uh, we do try to have social media output throughout the week. Again, thank you so much for listening. Share a link with a friend. It helps us more than you'll ever know. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.